Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Virginia Lee, Associate Editor. And Josh Berlin, Head of Business Development. On this week's pod, we remember John Martin, the legendary CEO who led Gilead Sciences for two decades. We also dig into BioCentury's analysis of this year's AACR meeting, which starts this Saturday. This week's Deal and Focus homes in on Abcellera's deal-making strategy and its latest partner. Plus, our colleague Josh joins us to highlight what's fresh this year at our annual BioEquity Europe conference. John Martin passed away unexpectedly last week at 69. I spoke with five of his friends, colleagues, and peers who recalled him as an A-plus chemist a company builder, an innovator, and a generous, humble man whose quiet, observational humor delighted many of his friends. He joined Gilead in 1990 when it was a fledgling antisense company. He quickly decided that the time wasn't right for antisense, and over the next 20 years, he turned Gilead into an antiviral company whose drugs turned HIV into a manageable condition and cured HCV. He was as committed to innovation in drug development as he was to innovation in pricing and access. Over the years, Gilead created pathfinding ways to ensure patients all over the world could get Gilead's life-saving drugs no matter where they lived or what their means were. I was very fortunate to speak to a few people who were very close to him, people such as Brooke Byers and Muz Mansuri, who don't do interviews, basically, but they got on the phone with me, who they'd never even met before, and just said, anything for John, anything to, to share our thoughts on his legacy. A week before Martin passed, Brooke Byers told me that he was with John over at the house of Pitch Johnson, the legendary VC, who was the first investor in Amgen, along with former CV Therapeutics CSO, Lou Lang. And they were enjoying wine and cheese and swapping stories about the good old days. And Brooke said that it was amazing that John remembered every small detail of Amgen's history. And John was never at Amgen. They also reminisced about the roots of Gilead, which as John told it to Brooke, Martin realized the company quickly needed to find a different product area. And being a medicinal chemist said, why don't we do small molecule drugs and let's go after some really hard problems. Brooke said that's how they started down the path of doing antivirals because he thought antivirals would be one of the hardest things you could possibly do at that time and would have a huge impact. Jeff, what were some of the key acquisitions that Gilead did in Martin's early years as CEO that really built them into what they are today? Great question, Virginia. When Martin joined Gilead, he already had under his belt one really important deal that he led at Bristol-Myers, which was to bring in the molecule that would become the first approved HIV drug in the US, which he licensed from Czech chemist, Tony Holy and Eric de Klerk. 
When he left Bristol-Myers, Bristol-Myers had returned rights to that IP back to the European scientists, and John quickly licensed it back at Gilead. Other deals that were key in building the company were, let's see, in 2006, they bought Myogen for $2.5 billion, and that brought in a uh, PAH drug, which almost became a blockbuster by 2017. Another really key deal was in 2009, Gilead bought CV Therapeutics, Lou Lang's company, who I mentioned earlier. Not only did that give the company Renexa, but it also gave the company Lou Lang. Lou Lang stayed on as a partner, an advisor to John in what Lou described as a sort of shadow cabinet of advisors. Beyond the CV Therapeutics deal, the two signature deals for Gilead under John Martin were the $11 billion Pharmacet deal and a few years later, the nearly $12 billion deal to bring in Kite. Now, the Pharmacet deal delivered enormous returns for the company. It gave Gilead HCV drug Solvaldi, and that, of course, was a critical piece of the franchise that delivered more than $55 billion in sales for the company in, I think, the first four years of it being on the market. And as we mentioned at the top of the pod, that drug revolutionized HCV treatment where for the first time, the vast majority of patients could be cured. Now, the Kite deal was the final cornerstone deal under Martin's tenure, and that deal signaled that the company really intended to build upon its relatively small oncology pipeline, I think got into cancer therapies, about five or six years earlier with the acquisition of Calistoga Pharmaceuticals for about $375 million up front. A lot of people really talked about his commitment to public health and expanding access in developing countries. Jeff, what are some examples of how Gilead innovated on the regulatory and market access side of things when it came to its HIV franchise? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've been following the space for 15 years now, and often I've seen the mainstream press really focus on Savaldi's price, for example, that really set off a firestorm a few years ago when they set the price. And it feels like that really ignited this ongoing furor over drug prices. But when you look at what Gilead did under Martin's leadership, he was really all about access, thinking about ways to get Gilead's drugs to everyone who needed it. I was fortunate to speak with Clifford Samuel, who was SVP of Global Patient Solutions. He led Gilead's access program in 140 countries under the leadership of Martin and Greg Alton, who was Gilead's chief patient officer. And Samuel told me that Martin started Gilead's access program before they were even profitable, which he said is a, a real mark of what John was all about. But Samuel told me that after three years, only 30,000 patients had received a Gilead drug at a reduced price via the access program. 
And that's when Samuel told me that Martin and Alton decided to give the recipe to the best of the best in drug manufacturing and then let them make a copy of it and make it available. And so what Martin did was he worked with Tommy Thompson, who was then HHS secretary, and also the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief to establish a new regulatory pathway that would facilitate near simultaneous FDA-like approval of generic copies of these medicines that would be manufactured in India. So essentially, as soon as the drug would get approved by FDA, it would set off a process by which Indian generics manufacturers were getting rights to the IP and were getting approval to make and sell cheaper versions of the drugs that were then sold on a tiered pricing scale based on how countries and individuals could pay. Jeff, you chatted with a lot of friends and former colleagues for this story. So are there any interesting anecdotes that didn't make it into the story? Great question, Virginia. I could have written another 10,000 words for this story, given all the anecdotes about John Martin that his friends told me. And while I was getting ready to say thank you and goodbye to Clifford Samuel, all of a sudden he just lit up and he said, look, this is the kind of person John was. And he told this story about how Pfizer had a plant to make API in the Bahamas and Pfizer mothballed it the guy that owned it reached out to Gilead and said, hey, I can revive this plant if I get a contract. And so he reached out to Gilead. And this was in the early 2000s. And what Clifford said was that, you know, you could argue that the Bahamas is not the best place to do this kind of manufacturing. It's not cheap because it's right off the coast of Florida. It's right in the hurricane paths, and Clifford himself is from the Caribbean. He described his home as, as one that you can't even see on a map. And he described how these hurricanes would come off Africa and then like do a loop around the island he grew up, and then they'd go right up and hit the Bahamas and Jamaica. He then said to me, no one will say this, but the reason why this factory is there making drugs for Gilead is because John stepped in and said, hey, what's a few more dollars to make this here? He knew that a plant like this in a place like the Bahamas creates a whole ecosystem. And Clifford said, I recognize it because I'm from a poor country. If something like that magnitude were to leave that city, there's not a lot left there. John was about these things. It wasn't always the financial decision or the best for the business decision, it was the right thing to do. And he would say, how do we make this work? And he would take the risk. I would encourage people to read the piece and see what the chairman of Biogen shared about him, his colleague, Muz Mansuri, and a few others that I was fortunate to speak with. Let's turn to AACR. Split into two weeks this year, the first session begins on Saturday, BioCentury's analysis of this year's meeting has unearthed new approaches to targets such as KRAS and TIGIT, details on allogenic and personalized cell therapies, 
and targeted protein degradation players beyond the usual suspects. They're new companies, but they've already become the usual suspects. Lauren, now that you're refreshed after a week away, what are you looking out for with AACR? I think this year is highlighting this really interesting evolution of drug development around two incredibly important targets that you mentioned for the industry and hopefully for patients. So with KRAS and with TIGIT, we have the first clinical validation, the first hints that these are going to work. And with the preclinical abstracts and some clinical abstracts that we'll start seeing this weekend, we're seeing the companies go beyond those first small molecules against KRAS and those first standard MABs against TIGIT with new approaches and in some cases, new modalities. For KRAS, we have the first data for Lilly's new inhibitor. They had exited the space last year and are now coming back. And I think that's a big deal because they've got a really focused clinical pipeline. So the fact that they're coming back with a new KRAS inhibitor is interesting. And then we're also going to see, hopefully this weekend, the first clinical data for Boeinger's pan-KRAS inhibitor, which works differently than the mutation-specific ones that are sort of leading the pack. All right. Wow, Lauren, that sounds cool. I know there's not much data out yet. What are you seeing in terms of new modalities against these targets? For KRAS, it's really interesting. The first inhibitors that we're seeing are actually blocking the target, but now companies are starting to go after the target as sort of a tumor-specific marker for immunotherapy. So there are a couple abstracts, preclinical abstracts on T-cell therapies going after KRAS mutations, specifically engineered TCRs, which are able to recognize those specific mutations on cancer cells and kill any cell that's expressing that. And Jeff had hinted at some new approaches to targeted protein degradation that we'll be seeing at AACR. So what are the approaches that this next generation is working on? Because we've seen a handful of first-generation programs that work via these really well-characterized E3 ubiquitin ligases. So what's new here? Yeah, we're seeing a couple abstracts. Well, we're still seeing a lot of activity in the, the E3 ligase space, those hetero-bifunctional degraders like the Protax. And, and what's interesting with those is that there are a lot of new targets coming up. And I think a lot of the abstracts are from companies, as Jeff said, that are not those first Arvenuses of the world. There's a lot of new biotechs moving into the targeted degrader space. And there's actually a lot of pharmas moving into that space too, but we don't see a lot of that at AACR. But then beyond that ProTac format, we're starting to see other ways to degrade specific proteins, like different monovalent candidates, for example. So it'll be interesting to see how those different strategies stack up after we get beyond the preclinical data. All right. Well, speaking of conferences, we've got our own conference coming up next month. Our Bioequity Europe conference will be kicking off. It's an all-digital event this year scheduled for May 17th to 19th. And we have Josh here to tell us about some of the features and panels and companies that will be presenting. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And thanks all for having me. We're really looking forward to a great event. As Jeff mentioned, it's May 17th to 19th. You can find out more information on our website, which is bioequityeurope.com. And this year's event, like all of our events, has a theme. So this year's theme is called Europe's Next Act. And the idea is that European innovators 
have helped to pave the way for the world's first COVID-19 vaccines. So what is coming next from Europe's biotech and academic leaders? We'll have three days of strategic panels looking at this theme. Uh, we'll also have three days of one-to-one -one virtual meetings. We'll have an exclusive conference report on European biotech from our partner McKinsey & Company. And we're really excited this year. We have over 125 presenting companies selected and confirmed so far by the BioCentury team. That includes a great collection of European biotechs, plus our first ever Asia Roadshow track at BioEquity, which will feature more than 15 China and Korea biotechs looking for opportunities in Europe. And I think that is one of the takeaways for the event this year, given that it's virtual. It really will be a global event this year. We're on track for record attendance from the U.S. and Asia, in addition to our regular crowd, which is a who's who of European biotech C-suite executives and investors. And as Jeff mentioned, it does start May 17 to 19, but actually the BioEquity Partnering One system has opened this week. So it is now live. That means you can register today, you can update your profile, and you can start scheduling your virtual one-to-one -one meetings immediately, both with the presenting company class of 2021, as well as other attendees. And this year we've also added complimentary access to BioCentury's BCIQ database. So that'll allow you to research and prepare for your one-to-one -one virtual meetings starting as soon as you register. We also, as Jeff alluded to, have a great agenda that our team has been working on. And so I would really urge you to check out our website, bioequityeurope.com. But I could, Jeff, if we have time, I could highlight a few sessions that I think we're really excited about. One is this year for the first time we'll be producing Biocentric editorial team will be producing what we call scene setter reports. So these are two exclusive reports from Biocentric that'll look at European financing and deal trends. You'll get copies of those two reports. And then our editor-in-chief, Simone Fishburne, will convene a panel of industry KOLs to discuss the data and findings of those reports and predict where Europe's next act will be. We also have McKinsey giving its keynote on its bioequity conference report that'll look at European innovation hotspots, and we'll take a deep dive into evolving centers of excellence in Europe. I think there's also a couple of other sessions real quick I wanted to highlight. One is we're going to have a great session this year, which we're calling a point-counterpoint session, where we'll have Bruce Booth of Atlas Ventures and Antoine Papernick of Sofanova Partners together in a virtual session discussing the differences between funding biotech innovation in Boston versus Europe. I think that'll be a really interesting discussion. And then our colleague, BioCentury senior editor, Karen Takach-Tuzman, has a roundtable that we're doing for the first time this year with young European entrepreneurs, 45 or under, who are looking to become the next generation of biotech pathfinders. This will be a great session, and Karen selected the panel from nominations that were sent in by European biotech leaders. The last one I would mention, Jeff, is as you well know, is we are gonna take the BioCentury This Week podcast on the road or on the virtual road, where Jeff will have a daily podcast from BioEquity each day with some special guests talking about the key topics that were discussed that day at BioEquity and how they see the industry evolving in Europe. I think that'll be really neat to have you doing that, Jeff, for the first time with this podcast feature at BioEquity. Yeah. And once you figure out how you're going to bribe me to get out of bed in the middle of the night to host the podcast, 
let me know. I'm uh, very fond of uh, rye uh, as well. We, we can as, work uh, on something. We might have to um, add something to the PL, but I'm sure, uh, I'm sure we can come up with something. But, you know, your point about the time zones, I think, is important in terms of the one to one virtual meetings. Those will be open 24 7 for those three days. And then also, if you register for the event, you can listen to every session recorded for 30 days after the event. So, if you don't have time to listen to it that day, you can still listen to it at your so, convenience. So it's just me that has to wake up. Well, hopefully at a good time zone for you, Jeff. Okay. So you have no, no excuse not to listen to the session. Sounds good. Well, if you want to send me to Hawaii to broadcast from there because the time zone's better, I'm sure you can slip it into the p &L. Yeah, we might want to wait till BioEquity 2022 for that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> after Belgium and Nexus, Hawaii, or I, that's right. Okay. And, and all seriously, we have announced where BioEquity 2022 will be, which will be in Milan, Italy, in May 2022. So Go we on. hope very much to be back in person post COVID in Italy next year. Here's to that. All right, let's quickly turn to our deal in focus. Last week, Gilead entered its second deal so far with Abcelera, the Vancouver based company has come to prominence during the pandemic thanks to its partnership with Eli Lilly. That partnership has yielded a monoclonal antibody to treat COVID-19. Under its deal with Gilead, Abcelera will create antibodies against up to eight targets chosen by Gilead. And BioCentury spoke with Carl Hansen, Abcelera's CEO. He told us that while terms of the deal are not disclosed. It is one of the company's largest deals to date. Now, Abcelera's business model centers on discovery of antibodies for other biopharmas. It doesn't have a pipeline of its own, but according to its latest annual report, the biotech now has over 100 discovery projects with 27 partners. Jeff, they've really been on a platform buying spree of their own as well in the last year. In July, they acquired a bispecifics platform, and then in November, they got a transgenic mouse platform via its takeout of Triani, and it sounds like they are continuing to build out their platform capabilities. That's really something to look out for in the coming year. They had nearly $600 million in cash at year end, so they have plenty of firepower to continue that deal making. That's a great point because I think the Triani technology is one of the things that is involved in this deal with Gilead. All right. Well, that's all we have time for ahead this week on biocentury.com. Our colleague, Stephen Hansen, will bring you our 2Q financial markets preview. And we will have the next installment of our Korea Spotlight series, as well as hopefully finally the story I've been wanting to write on Cormorant, I got a little sidetracked last week, but we have some good stories to tell, and I believe we'll be hearing more from Ms. Martz on AACR, unless this one morning of returning to work has her fleeing for another week off. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.